Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing again. That's right, keep breathing. Coming to you live from LA, the city of angels, <laughs> and from New York City, the Big Apple. I'm Dave Nassani, and you are on the Caregiver Dave Show at caregiverdave.com, and I'm with my lovely co-host, Adrian Gruberg of thecaregiverspace.org. Say hello, Adrian. Hello, Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes yeah, I have to do that, I'm sorry. <laughs> Say hello. Say okay. So we are proud to be voted number one caregiving podcast of the top 50 on Player FM and the top six podcasts on Caring.com and a whole bunch more, which uh, <laughs> I lost my script, so I can't tell you what exactly they're for. Where Pete's are you? I, we're number one caregiver podcast on thousands of caregiver podcasts on Feedspot. I think that's right. Yes. And I'm in a I am in a hotel, so that's why I'm a little out of water, like a fish out of water. I don't have my computer. I don't have my microphone. I don't have me standing behind me in Times Square <laughs> on the Jumbotron. And no, um, you've but got, I think we're you've... gonna I think we're gonna make it. <laughs> now we have an exciting show planned for you. It is Anne Loudon. And let me tell you a little bit about Anne. She's pretty amazing. She's an author of an upcoming book, Connection is a Superpower, How Social Courage Gives You the Edge in Life and Love. What a great title. And I'm excited to uh, start the show. I just want to Yeah, I want to thank <laughs> my last week's guest, James Beard. And uh, just a reminder, you can listen to that um, podcast, videocast. Uh, and all of them, including this one, on my membership website, caregiverdave.com, or on all those other platforms that we're on, iHeartRadio, YouTube, Blog Talk Radio, etc. I'm not going to list them all here because I'm just not going to because there are just too many. You can do them on <laughs> so, all from now on. You can say it again? On a video. You can do them on a video crawl. A video crawl, I guess. You'll have to explain to me what a video crawl is. Okay. Because I'm not that tech savvy. Okay. Uh, I'm, a good, I'm a good faker. So, Anne, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Dave and Adrian. Nice to talk with you as well. We're in the same city. Yeah. We're, yeah. I think you're on the upper, what, upper east side. That's correct. But we can okay. meet in the middle for coffee. Yeah, we could. <laughs> Sorry, we Dave. Could, yeah. We're not going to include you. <laughs> well, I'll be here April 23rd. <laughs> and I'm, That's and I'm right. sure, and I'm sure Lisa is going to want to do lunch or something when uh, I'm in uh, New York for April during the uh, summit. So let's just start planning for that right now. Yeah. So Anne, uh, why? Uh, I like to ask my guests just who the heck is Anne Loudon, and why was she placed on this earth? Well, that's a two-parter, Dave. I think the first answer it is... It is. It is. Yeah. Okay. So part A, part a who is Ann Loudon? She is a Tennessean. 
burned Texan turned turned after thirty years to New York to be a new mm. new New Yorker. And I think now I know why I was placed on this earth. If you'd asked me at different decades of my life, I wouldn't have known. But now I, I'm pretty convinced that I am supposed to be an example to other people. It's the life, the life that we can best lead is to figure out what our purpose is. And I've always wanted to leave a legacy. That's been important to me. I went through cancer uh, about 13 years ago and realized, although devastatingly mm. difficult, that there was on the other side of it, there was a way to help other people. It's and a, so yeah. what, mo- what motivates me is that. That is what I'm doing here, and that's what I hope to continue doing as long as I'm on the Earth, Dave. Yes, and I believe every single human being on the Earth needs to leave a legacy because they were put here for a reason. And these people that are just wasting their lives and, and don't realize that, that their life has purpose, I don't know, I, I just want to slap them. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get to our well, questions. Well, let's, let's hope that's not your purpose, to slap everybody, because there are a lot of people <laughs> like that. <laughs> it might be. I mean, you never know. Something but, upside uh, the head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, I, I, uh, I do think, just one more point on that, I do think that we don't really know what we're here for until we have some perspective. And the challenges in true. our lives, the challenges that we go through are what teaches us perspective. This book that I'm writing, I couldn't have written 20 years ago and probably not even 10 years ago because I've been through more each decade that it's taught me if I can be resilient and getting through some of those challenges that I can understand better how to help other people. Yeah, and it, and it might take, you know, in your 30s or 40s or 50s or 60s to find out what that destiny and purpose is, but at least... You, you should be looking for it. You say, what am I here for? You know, where's my niche? What, are, what am I passionate about? Where are my gifts? And so on. So I agree. So well, I, I think I'm, ask I'm on the, sorry, I, was gonna say, I think I'm on the right conversation here because I'm totally in agreement <laughs> with you. I, li- I like that you emphasize that we are asking yeah. that question every day. We should be. We should be. Well, I'm, I'm glad that the three of us do have a legacy that we are mm-hmm. leaving to the world when we do. Uh, decide as if we have a decision, but when when God decides that it's time for us to leave. So what are the three most important uh, skills? Now wait, before that, I want to ask a question because a lot of caregivers maybe don't even know what the heck we're talking about. Right. So what should caregivers care about the power of connection? That's kind of a, oh. uh, a mysterious uh, line that I just said, and maybe you can explain a little bit in English. Uh, this is the only language I speak so that's we're going to be limited to English here Uh, but I do think a definition of connection is warranted and then we can talk about why caregivers would care so in my terminology connection is about building intentional relationships and then honoring them so we are born into a family that we're connected to and that uh, is a blood relationship but most of our lives we spend outside that family in work and building friendships and building other kinds of relationships that facilitate our living. It can be something as casual as getting to know the person that is in, in the case of Adrian and me, we live in the big city, so we have to get to know people in our buildings. 
if you uh, if you lived in a rural area, you'd want to have a relationship with people that could help you do whatever your work was, and you'd be thinking about who those people are and how they could be helpful to you. So it's all about we have to have relationships. We're not meant we're wired for connection. We're not meant to be isolated. We can't go through life alone. But it is how intentional are we about making our world bigger by building those relationships? And then once we have them, how do we invest in them? Because you can meet people one time and never see them again. Or if, mm-hmm. it's, important, if it's important to you to maintain those relationships, you can meet people and then keep them in your lives. It takes work and energy, but there's so much benefit that comes from being connected and caring about those people in your lives. So yeah, why should, and, care, why should caregivers care? Do you want me to move on to that, or we can still yeah, talk about ahead. what connection like, is? Yeah. Well, caregiving is an extremely isolating experience from the time that you invest in getting a diagnosis, which is only half of caregiving. Let's just even say it's 10%. Once you know what you're dealing with, whether it's dementia or some physical ailment or combination of those two things and, and what you're facing medically, that's the first part. But the second part is dealing with the illness, not dealing with the diagnosis, and they're very different. And dealing with the illness and the day-to-day routine and, and it's in some respects the drudgery of that day-to-day routine where you're very much alone often as a sole caregiver, it can isolate you from the rest of the world. And the lack of connection, support, encouragement from those that are around you will diminish your living. It'll diminish your caregiving skills. It'll diminish your coping skills. And so if caregivers can nurture this pattern of being connectors, they can lessen the pain of the caregiving experience. And there's joy in caregiving. I don't mean to diminish that either. But But we all know that caregiving can absolutely damage the health of the caregivers. It can shorten their lives. It can bring on health issues they didn't, they weren't exposed to previously. There's so many downsides to what the caregiver experiences that they, that they and we must find a way to replenish. And connection is one of those replenishment ways, techniques. It's, I'd, I'd like to interject for a second. Caregivers very often will turn away from a lot of the people in their lives yeah, um, isolate them. they'll isolate themselves out of choice um, eventually out of choice but to, to start with you know everybody will say well I'll be here when you whatever you need I'm here for you and when they're not there it's because you haven't kept that connection going well, and this, yeah. you're so right. It's, it's very similar to my experience with cancer. People would say things to me like, whenever you need me, call me. Exactly. And it, 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 it's the lack of anticipatory, how can I help, or let me just show up and bring groceries, or let me get mm. you out of here and take you to the movie, whatever it is. It's right. very difficult for people to know what to do in situations of crisis, uh, like a death or, you know, like an illness or some other big challenge in life. And if we have those strong, cared-for connections, uh, then the chances of those people being more quick to respond to us is far greater. And it Mm. is this, you said it so well, Adrian, that the idea of being a caregiver sometimes is synonymous with the sense of, I'm going to... 
I've got this enormous responsibility now. I'm going to have to step away from the world and execute it. And the, really the truth is the flip side of that. I need mm -hmm. the world to help me execute this. I can't do it alone. Yeah, you know, so many people are so flippant in the way they say, hey, yeah, we'll get together sometime. Oh, yeah, call me. You know, and the other person kind of knows that you're not really serious or it's like, hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm fine. You know, it's just an automatic response. But caregivers really need to take these people at their word and say, oh, really? Okay. Um, can I call you tomorrow? You know, pin them down. Or say, hey, if you need anything at the supermarket, you know, let me know. Oh, actually, I do need something. Um, yeah, be ready. You're there, can you pick up some lettuce or, or cold cuts or something? You know, because caregivers don't want to ask for help for whatever reason. They don't want to be a burden on the person. They think that they don't really want to uh, help. They, uh, you know, whatever's in your mind. I mean, I cut my finger one one time because I, I didn't want to ask somebody to help hold the other end of the, of the molding with the skill saw. And I'm the caregiver's caregiver. If I, if I can't even ask for help, what hope I mean, do caregivers have? There's some shame in asking for help. And I, I can't you know, do it my, by myself. I can't Please do it help. by myself. Well, excuse me. No, you can't do it by yourself. <laughs> well, and you think of the example. Yeah, well, they're in denial about that. Yeah. Totally. And, and if you think of the examples of times that you've been given help, and how much you want to reciprocate the closest relationships that we have to us where there's this give and take there's this you do this thing and i'll do this thing and it's it becomes this lovely dance if you don't have the relationships close to you to be able to access then you really do feel isolated uh, the other thing about the caregiving experience that's probably true to, in every single situation is that you're entering a world you have no idea how to navigate you don't, you know, you're learning as you're going, and you're so absorbed and so exhausted with the process, there's kind of not room for anything else. So if somebody's not standing close to you to help you with that, you, you know, it's just, it just requires so much effort to be able to find that person on the outside to, to provide the assistance that you need. Mm -hmm. So uh, th there's shame. There's also this issue, as you said, of, you know, oh, I can handle it by myself, and the false sense of security of I've got this, when potentially you really don't have it, and being able to admit that is what is 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 what causes people to disengage from others around them. Yeah, and another reason why people maybe don't want to ask for help—they don't want to be indebted. They say, "Okay, now I owe him, and I'm so overwhelmed. There's no way I can repay him for, right. for even going to the supermarket mm -hmm. for it." And and I don't want this to be a one-sided. You know, they just talk themselves out of it. Exactly. That's such an interesting point. I once met a person who was so disengaged with the world and someone that speaks about loyalty and how we're wired for loyalty. Our brains are wired to be loyal and, and to trust others. Um, but he himself didn't want to have any connections to the world. He wouldn't want to do a favor for someone, as you say, for the very reason he felt that you know he would be accept a favor because he'd be obligated to provide the favor. That's not a connection attitude. A connection attitude is I give willingly and then I'll get back willingly. But you give from your heart. You give because you want to. And then what comes back to you is the, is the grace of investing in that relationship. Yeah. So what are the three most important skills of communication? Well, there's so many skills of, of connectors and how they communicate. It's, I'll, I'll pick my top That's why three. I asked the top three. Yeah, we could yeah be here top all day. three. Uh, yeah, the first one is being open to the possibility. 
So uh, as an example, when I moved from Texas to New York without knowing how this was going to go in terms of a transition and the culture shock of it, I approached it as an adventure. I didn't know who was going to meet and I didn't know what life was going to be like, but I was open to the possibility that it could be different and it could be even better. And so that gave me the mental attitude of being willing to connect with people that I didn't know and building friendships with them. So the first is being open, having a joyous attitude to the possibility that life brings you something good if you are are willing to accept whatever the universe brings you. The second skill set is not being cynical. And what that means is not presupposing that you know the answer, that, oh, that, that person can't help me, or that person doesn't know anything, or, you know, that person's not someone I'm going to enjoy. You don't know until you really have the experience of engaging one-to-one. So being open to possibility, not being cynical. And then the third, which is That's a, a hard one, by the way. Not being cynical. I, well, we, the, you know, sort of the older we get, we, we've seen it all. But the truth yeah. is, uh, the truth My is bad. that as, as you go to new experiences, and maybe when I made this transition to New York, it solidified for me this point of view that I, I do think is accurate. No matter your age, when you change your environment or something in your environment changes you, if you aren't open to the possibilities, you'll be more closed than you were before you made the change. So if you come to something wow. new, with, you know, if you come to something new with, with a sense of, I've seen it, I've done it, I don't care to know more. You won't know more. But if you go through a change and you think, what could come of this that I hadn't anticipated, uh, that I can't see, somebody else can take my hand and show me the way, you're going to have a lot more opportunity in your life to live in a bigger way. And so the being cynical, not being cynical is number two. And number three which goes along to being open to the possibility is, is having a sense of natural curiosity, asking yourself the question, I wonder why that person thinks this. I wonder what this means. Uh, I wonder what I can learn if. And having that attitude in, in cooperation with the first two points is, is the exact mindset you need to become a connector. It's, it's this, you know, I don't have an agenda. I don't really know what's going to happen next, but I'm open to the chance that something great could happen. And I have to believe the positive. I, I, I don't, I'm not going to go with the, oh, it's probably not going to be. I'm going to go with, oh, it possibly could be. Yeah. Caregivers uh, are not very positive. They, they're cynical. They're negative. And yeah, you hit the nail on the head. Well, listen, let's take a break really exactly. fast. We'll be right back. Our featured speaker is a best-selling author who has written numerous books and articles. He's a speaker, life coach, and host of Dave, the Caregiver's Caregiver radio program. He frequently appears on television and radio shows all across the country and has even shared the stage with Suzanne Summers at Harvard. But his most important role is caregiver to his beautiful wife, Charlene, for over 22 years. Please welcome Mr. Dave Nassani! I want to share with you a love story. In a couple of weeks, my wife and I will be celebrating 44 years of being together. My wife, Charlene, and I had a fairy tale, storybook, romance, courtship, and marriage for the first 21 years of our lives together. One day, out of nowhere, my wife has a headache, the headache of her life. She suffered a massive stroke, and it left her severely speech-impaired and paralyzed on the right side. And in that moment, our world 
turned upside down. I gotta tell you, the next two years was like a living hell. I just didn't know what to do. I felt guilty most of the time. I became a caregiver. I didn't even know what a caregiver was. I was experiencing the same problems that other caregivers experienced. If you don't take care of you, I can't take care of her. Well, that's why I wrote the book. Now I can teach other caregivers. I'm living proof that you can thrive as a caregiver. My wife and I travel now all over the world sharing our story. One day life is gonna call upon you to be the captain of your boat. Heck, you might be saving your own life. Thank you. Yeah. Welcome back to the Caregiver Dave Show and I'm with uh, Adrian Gruberg, my co-host, and Ann Loudon, my wonderful guest. So Ann, Let's talk about, uh, you know, our, our audience is care burned out caregivers, and you are a caregiver, too. Tell us about your caregiver experience. Well, I've had two significant caregiving experiences, both very different. Uh, the first was my immediate family, and it was my mother, who had, uh, at a fairly young age in her, uh, what I say young, in her early 70s, had a stroke. And in the, pro in the process of this diagnosis and follow-up care and need to move her out of her environment, she was a widow at the time, uh, my family, my sisters and I learned that she was also a hoarder. We had not known it, and it sounds impossible that you don't know those things, but when you're kept out of a physical look space so you can't see what's happening, and you can see the pattern, but you don't really know the extent of it. Right. Uh, then the shock of the knowledge of what do you do first with all the things and how do you sort through them and manage with a person who's also now got a physical condition and then shortly thereon had a dementia, how do you go through all that? And it was uh, a huge learning curve for my sisters and for me to get my mother moved to a different place. To We, we had seven of those industrial um, garbage bins that got yeah. backed up to the home that I lived in. Containers. Containers, thank you for the correct word. And, and, and having to get items that were uh, both mundane and, and important but had no place in the home anymore that had to be right. disposed of. And so that was a very, very tricky part. And my mother survived for through another stroke and through then de uh, descending medical uh, health quality for another six years. So there was a really long period of time where we were managing all of these things. And I say we because my sisters and I were doing this together, and one of my sisters was, was the day-to-day -day caregiver. And one of the things that I'll uh, say was, about... Was your mother with her? Yeah, she w eventually she was. That's what we oh. had to do, move her from one state to the next. Uh -huh. And so one of the in the process, one of the the shocking aspects for me about this because I was the I was the helper, but I did I didn't live in the same community. My sister mm -hmm. ended up being in the same community. Was that when my mother died, my sister went through a deep depression because her days had been had been defined by caring for my mother, and even though that the absence of this experience yeah, that's common, that her, very her common, was, yeah. yeah. Her life was different, but she, uh, it, it, was, it was absolutely grueling for her to then find the purpose in her life. Uh, the other experience that I had uh, was more unusual, uh, not typical, not immediate family. 
I had known and when I was living in Texas and working in the university environment, I got to meet many of the university graduates and became close to them, particularly those that were older than I was, you know, decades older. I was a you know, much younger woman at the time. And I got acquainted with a woman who uh, was at celebrating her 50th reunion from this university, and I, I was organizing it, and we got to be good friends. And she was a personality. She loved everything blue. She had a blue car. She had a blue front door. She wore only blue <laughs> She wore only blue clothes. She only had blue furniture in her lovely home. She had only blue flowers in her garden. And uh, this, this made her a unique and spunky, wonderful kind of woman. And so uh, I had this long tenure relationship with her. And because she had no children, she began to think of me as her granddaughter. Mm-hmm. And then enter her brother and his wife, who wanted to claim some of her financial resources. So they took her to a doctor. He declared her to have early onset dementia. And mm-hmm. so they decided they were going to propose guardianship. And when they, it, it became actually a trial heard by a judge uh, because it was premature that they could have claimed guardianship and it would have been for less good purposes, honestly. So the judge appointed me as her guardian because I was supposedly the neutral person. Now I have no, I have no family connection to her. I know very mm-hmm. little about her life, and yet I'm now tasked with the responsibility of sorting through all of her blue things and moving her from her, <laughs> from her home that she had lived in for 40 years into an assisted living facility. I had to furnish it. I worked really hard on the blue. And I have to tell you, the, one of the funniest stories about this was I thought I was getting it all exactly right. I had her stay with a neighbor for the day. I get the moving truck. We sort through things. We sell things. It, this is premature to the move date. And then I get her to this beautiful place and think I've done a fantastic job. In her bedroom, which was the bedroom in the house, there was a framed photo of a young woman and I assumed it to be a family member so I take that framed photo and I put it in the new bedroom on her dresser and I stock the fridge and I put a dozen roses on the kitchen table and at the end of the day I'm exhausted but I bring her back with the neighbor and she comes in she looks all around and she says oh my gosh this is beautiful and then she goes into her bedroom and she says but Ann I don't know who's the picture what's that picture on my dresser who is, who is, who is that I said, I don't know. I thought you know who it was. She said, no, that's just a picture frame. It was a stock art photo. Oh, God. That I thought she had treasured. And I I had moved it. Oh, my gosh. I couldn't believe it. It was a sepia tone, you know, a woman that looked like she had been born in the 1920s or 30s. And so anyway, uh, that that was my experience then. And then Vera spiraled downward. Uh, over a period of about six years with the dementia and with her physical challenges. And, so, and, and eventually I was moved out of the guardianship role and the neighbor became the guardian. But mm-hmm. I had to accommodate my personal life, working life, to a person that I had known socially but not in any way. I remember going through her lingerie drawer thinking, this is this is extremely personal. I'm having to figure out what I can take and what I shouldn't take. It was a bizarre challenging experience for me to play that role but I learned a lot from it so uh, that's those are my two my mother and then uh, Vera the, the blue the blue lover <laughs> yeah well like you said it's so common uh, to get depressed after caregiving that Adrian sure. actually has a caregiver group 
called uh, Aftercare Support Group. So um, communion skills, some people have them, some people don't, some people are rotten at them. Uh, how do you cultivate them, and what do you what do you do if they don't come naturally to a person? You just give up? Oh, no, no, of course, never give up um, <laughs> in, in anything. I think, but one of the one of the quick conclusions people draw is that oh, I'm not an extrovert, and extroverts must be good at this. If I'm an introvert and I need to re, uh, you know, replenish myself, I do it in, in right. solitude. I process. So better. help me, that's me. That's you. You don't. You yeah. Don't sound, you don't sound. Me too. Me too. Me. No. <laughs> well, I. I think. I think we've, we've managed to act like uh, extroverts, even though we're not extroverts. Well, I. Th I. I do believe that there. We have to know who we are with respect to our personalities. Do we? Do we like to function in a big group and walk in and know no one and get acquainted in that way, or do we like this sort of one-on-one -on -one relationship? And it, which is just know what it is, whichever it is. And if you're the introvert, and I was for years until my job and my work, and I've been in the world of philanthropy and raising money for nonprofits all my career, so uh, I, I'm interested in the idea of what makes philanthropist connectors or how they get engaged first in your cause. But, but having said that, I was introverted forever, and I found that what gave me joy was getting to know people at a deep level one-to-one. -one. And those connections are as valuable, in fact, probably more important than large groups of social acquaintances, which are what extroverts mm -hmm. create. So you may have the advantage there. So if it, if it doesn't come naturally for you to build a, a relation, relationships, um, that I ask you to do a little brief uh, assessment in your, in your mind. Ask yourself, who are the, most, the five most important people in your life? And I don't know how this will turn out for you, but whatever. Right. Okay, so if you know who those five most important people are, uh, then are they family or are they people you wouldn't have known but for what, but for blank? And so, I, you know, I kind of call it my connection timeline when I've asked myself this question. If I hadn't done this thing, I wouldn't have met this person. And if I didn't know this person, this good thing in my life wouldn't have happened. I love tracing that back because it really can tell you who you've come to value and how you've gotten to know them. And I'd be yeah, and it wouldn't have happened if you were being shy and introverted. Right. And I'd be willing to bet at least one of your five, maybe more than that, would be people that you met, what I would say, like over the transom. You met somebody that you would not have known, whether it's a doctor or somebody else in the medical field that helped you, or it was a neighbor, or it was someone that you met through another person, and that was a life changer for you. And so there is great value. In my own life, I can trace the work that I've gotten, the people that I've spent time with in a crisis, uh, those that have shared similar interests, they were all people that I wouldn't necessarily have known if I hadn't made some effort. Or, or, or maybe we, we both made an effort, but then I had responsibility for taking, to, for, for moving that forward. And I'm, you know, I'm adventuresome enough, if I can move from Texas to New York, this time in my life, that I say always what if. And I, maybe I wouldn't have said that before I had cancer, but the medical challenges in my life have given me the sense of the importance of living life every day. I think you said that at the very beginning of the conversation, Dave, but we, if we're not asking ourselves every day what we're doing, then we're not getting full impact from our lives. 
And so I, I, I know that connection brings joy. I know that connection brings a sense of arms around me. I know that it's changed my life. And I'm compelled to be able to teach these skills to others so that they can learn how to find uh, more satisfaction in their lives. In particular, I'm interested in the fact that our younger generation, my daughter's 22, um, hide behind technology and think it's connection. Yep. Whether it's uh, texting versus picking up the phone, it's a huge problem. Whether it's uh, social media, I'm not saying those don't have value. I think that they do, and I, I certainly use them. But on the other hand, if that surplaces uh, or replaces the plants, uh, the, the face-to-face, then, then you will feel very disconnected over time. Yeah. Well, listen, we're going to take another break because it's time. <laughs> so we'll be right back. Don't go away. Dave Nassani, the caregiver's caregiver, has just released his sixth book entitled It's My Life Too. Reclaim your caregiver sanity by learning when to say yes and when to say no. It was specifically written for caregivers who know they should be putting their needs first, but just don't know how. Dave is the sole caregiver to his wife, Charlene, since 1996. He knows firsthand what caregivers are going through, because he is one. And he now speaks all across the country, offering caregivers his incredible caregiver support package. Even the airlines tell us that in the event of an emergency, to put your oxygen mask on first, before you help your child with their mask. They know that those who don't heed their advice often black out, thus becoming unable to help either themselves or their child. And caregivers are exactly the same way. It's my life too. Reclaim your caregiver sanity by learning when to say yes and when to say no. We'll help caregivers who are neglecting their sleep, diet, and social life and learn to put their needs first. Pick up your copy today or buy one for your special caregiver. On sale everywhere and at caregiverscaregiver.com. And we're back with the Caregiver Dave Show. I, my guest, Ann Loudon, and my co-host, Adrian Gruberg. I'm Dave Nassani at caregiverdave.com. And I wanted to ask you, you know, being a caregiver is a double-edged sword. It can be a real blessing, and it can be a real curse. And uh, some, some of the stories that Adrian and I hear on our Facebook pages are just... Oh my God! You know, horrendous. It, I mean, and, and we're professional counselors. I mean, it, it it should take a lot to shock us, right? Hear the yeah. story about the counselor who hears this story and he tries not to act shocked. And and uh, <laughs> many times it's the case with us. We try not to be shocked, but we are. I have um, no answers. Tell, yeah, and I'm, not not easy <laughs> answers anyway. Right. You know, you got the the pat answers and the cliche answers, but yeah. I think they do more harm than good. So yep. sometimes you got to say, oh, my gosh, I, I, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to respond to that. You know, and at least they say, oh, good. Well, then I'm, it's not me. I'm not crazy because I don't know what to say about it either, you know. And, and you've got at least someone uh, sharing with you that you're not crazy. But what would you say is your most important thing that you've learned from caregiving? Because it is really a life-changing experience, which means it's a good thing. But it's hard to see the good while you're in the midst of the storm. Oh, absolutely. I, I think the most important skill set for caregiving and for living is staying in the present moment, which mm -hmm. means that you're not reflecting on Worry the mistakes about you made in the past. 
and or what and you're not about spreading uh, about tomorrow because if you're if you're spending you, it takes an extraordinary amount of energy to be a caregiver. It takes an extraordinary amount of energy to worry, and it's wasted energy because you can't. There's much you can't change. So the difference between planning, anticipating, organizing, and worrying. First three are proactive, and the last one is is a, a, a negative. Because uh, worrying is just anxiety sort of spinning around over and over again. Uh, being thoughtful, proactive, planning, and, and, and being resourceful, those are, are uh, skill sets that advance what we need to accomplish. So I remember when I, again, I'm thinking about, you know, the, both the caregiving experience and the cancer experience, which seem aligned in my head, at least for the, the lessons learned, is that the more I could be in the moment uh, with, with Vera, with the... Uh, you know, with the, the day that we, I thought I had found this or cherished this wonderful image of someone that was in her family mm-hmm. that she loved and put it on her dresser, and then she challenges me about it, and all I could do was really laugh. It was a funny, it was a funny moment, and, you know, and I was going to beat myself up about that, that step that I'd taken. And I remember my mother used to, she would buy, because she was a hoarder, she would buy not one of something to buy mm-hmm. ten of the same ten of the same thing. Right. It might be ten, ten Kleenex boxes that all look the same, or ten you know plastic trash bins, or you know ten uh, uh, trash bags. She was obsessed with trash, which is kind of funny because she had she had lots of trash she accumulated. But and and so instead of, of of getting ahead of that, what we my sister and I would do would be to, to be amused by it because there was really nothing else that that we could do that would make that moment feel lighter. And so that I guess maybe that's a phrase I should think about as we think about, you know, what does, if you stay present, the whole moment is lighter. It doesn't carry the burden of the past and it doesn't carry the, or the frustration of the past and doesn't carry the burden of the future. So I, I, the, the staying present is also something that's been, it's allowed me to take greater risks. You know, thinking that, okay, could I have moved to New York? Could I have afforded it? Where was I going to live? Who was I going to meet? What was I going to do? And, with with that attitude, I could have talked myself out of it. Easily, but with, yeah. With, with the attitude of staying present, I I thought, you know, I, I can just do this, and I'll figure it out one day at a time. I am very much a planner, but but being able to be in that moment gave me much greater joy and gives me much greater joy. Just like talking to you two. I'm not thinking about anybody else and anything <laughs> else. I'm thinking, I'm thinking about being in this moment talking to both of you. I yeah. don't need to see the fire. <laughs> so, so let me ask you something. Let's talk about your book. Um, you're interviewing for your book. Um, I am. Who, who exactly are you interviewing? Well, let me tell you that the people I interview have to meet four criteria. Or I don't really want to talk to them. And I like to talk to everybody. So this is a serious <laughs> kind of delineation for what I need. So I'm interviewing, I originally said 15 people, but I think it's going to end up being more like 20 because more people I interview, the more they suggest someone else I should interview. But back to the uh. criteria. The first is that they, they have to be highly successful in their industry, whatever that industry might be. And I have people that are in uh, entertainment. I have people that are in the business world. I have people that are clergy. 
I have um, individuals that are in the nonprofit community. I have athletes. So I'll get into that in a minute. But but they have to be highly successful because that suggests to me that they've gone through their career path in an upward fashion and that obviously we're assuming that they've learned something in that process. So that's mm-hmm. number one. Number two, they need to be well-known. I'm not being a snob about that, but if they are well-known in their industry, and I've got a couple aspirational interviews that are well-known nationally, then if I can shine a spotlight on them as, as super connectors, as connection heroes, their story is more interesting to everyone else. So they've already got their own collection of, of they've already got their own world, and they've got people around them that have celebrated their success. But now that we point out this particular characteristic that they have of being a connector, and then all of a sudden we can illustrate what connection really means. The third thing that they need to do is they have to meet my list of the 10 attributes of a connector. And I will admit I made the list up, but these are 10 things. I only shared three of them with you earlier that I believe are key to being a successful connector. So again, they have to be successful, well-known, and a connector. And the fourth is the most important. They have to be using those connection skills to change and save lives. And that, to me, can mean philanthropy. It can mean giving charitably to a cause. It can mean advancing other people's causes. It can mean developing talent. Whatever it is in their world, they have to be proactive in doing something with those connection skills that is a story worth telling and illustrates the points of what I'm trying to say are teachable skill sets for connection in a world of what I believe is increasing disconnection. So who have I interviewed or who am I interviewing? Well, I'll just give you a, a, a handful. Just two, I'll just tell you three for now. I'm interviewing uh, a, a, a priest in Chicago who is a papal appointee. So the Pope singled him out as the person who runs Catholic Extension around the country. And mm-hmm. a, a Catholic Extension is a, a community-based set of, of resources and activities and focused primarily in indigent parishes. So uh, in this case, uh, there are communities where everybody's below the poverty line, 157 communities in the country, mm-hmm. and the only form of connection they have is through the church. So uh, the, the priest that I'm interviewing has this important role of being the connector nationally to, to so many people who wouldn't have an advantage or help or assistance in the right way without it. The second person that I want to mention is a woman who uh, is the inspiration for a Broadway show, and Adrian, maybe you've seen it. It's called Come From Away. It's the yeah. story of one of the first uh, female pilots that American Airlines ever hired, and she led a squadron of 20-plus planes on, on 9-11 from, uh, New York, away from New York airspace to Gander, Newfoundland when planes could not land in New York. Right. And there were seven, so 7,000 people landed in a, to- a town of 2,000 people and were there for a week. And the town had to completely change their way of living and being to accommodate all these strangers who'd come from away. And mm-hmm. so this, this is a story of Beverly Bass, who is that, was that pilot, who led the planes into this community. It's a phenomenal story of redemption and connection and, and how, uh, how people, strangers, can open their, their arms and their hearts to those that they don't know. My cousin was one of those people. Was she? She was in Gander? No, it was a he. No, he was one of the seven thousands. <laughs> he was on one the of the invaders. Oh my gosh, what a, that's a great connection story. Offline, we need to talk about that because I need to introduce... <laughs> 
him. See, this is a connection move. I'd introduce him to her. And she may, <laughs> she may well, she may well know him. Yeah. But so she, so she's now written a book uh, called The Sky and Me, which is for little girls who aspire to be female pilots. And uh, she's done the show's opening around the world, and it's a big hit here in New York. And so uh, I love the chance to talk to her. Uh, and another person that I interviewed is a woman who's one of the four vice chairs at Morgan Stanley. Uh, mm-hmm. She is in charge of diversity in, uh, in, in the company of 57,000 people. And she's also a gospel singer. And mm-hmm. I got to see her at the Apollo Theater at Christmas time. And she's phenomenal. And she said to me when we met, I, 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 you know, I'm a, I think I'm a connector. She's, she came from nothing in Florida. She had no money. She worked her way up the education ladder. She graduated from Harvard, international speaker. She's written two books herself. And she is, um, she said, you know, I don't know that I'm as much of a connector as you are. Maybe I, I need to learn some things. I'm, I've not thought about this the way you think about it. And mm-hmm. I said, well, what, what, when you sit on an airplane, what, what percentage of the time do you talk to people around you? She said, oh, maybe 30%. I said, why is that? And she said, because I probably don't want to invest a, a, enough of myself in the possibility, but now I think I'm going to. So it, it's been really fascinating. I've had some fantastic conversations. I'm going to L.A. That's why I'm coming to L.A. Dave, in two weeks to interview some more people in L.A. I'm going where they are and having the conversations with the people that I think are these super connectors mm-hmm. because it, it's important for me to sit in front of them. Can so I, uh, I want to ask you a question about... The, that hesitancy to um, to talk to the people on the airplane it 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 it's it mirrors the experience of well I want to get to know this person um, and I'll do this and this and this and this but what if that's that doesn't do it I you know I'll feel that I expended this energy trying to get to know this person and I invested myself and I've been rejected. How do, what, you know, well, there are lots of people who won't talk to you on an airplane, you know, don't pretend they're sleeping. (laughs) Anything, (laughs) not to talk. Exactly. However, first of all, you're, if you have something, sorry, Dave. Did you, did no, you I said that? imagine that. Oh, yeah, imagine that. Well, you may have something that keeps you from talking to somebody on an airplane. I'm not suggesting, suggesting every flight you take you, you right. talk to someone. <laughs> but, but I will say you're in a plane and you're not going anywhere, and that time is, is a time committed to flying. Mm-hmm. And so if, if, you've lost some, if you've lost anything, all you've lost is the flight. Right. All you've lost is the time on the flight, on the which flight. you could have put to a different use. Uh, but I can give you five examples I want right now of people that I've met on airplanes, and those are, at least three of the five, are friendships that exist today, still mm-hmm. exist today, and, and made things possible for me that I would never have dreamed. And so, mm-hmm. it, it's again, it's what I said earlier, it's being open to the possibility. And a plane's not the only place. You know, in New York, people have their heads down, so they don't necessarily mm-hmm. engage in conversation. But I recently went to a book talk here with an author who, as it turns out, lives in my building. There's 750 people in my building, so I would have probably never seen her on the elevator. But since that time, we've, I've, got, I've met her and her husband in their apartment on a 
14 floors above me for a conversation that'll continue on. We'll be great friends. And That's so great. it's wonderful if we hadn't had that opportunity to make that mm-hmm. connection that we both live in the same place, maybe it wouldn't have happened. I'm just always glad for the adventure of meeting somebody else, meeting somebody mm-hmm. new. Yeah, you encouraged me. I'm, I'm, we're open now as, as I'm well. open. <laughs> you certainly, open. You, you certainly know. have learned a lot from these interviews, and I, uh, I, I, I can't believe the time. The time is gone. It goes so fast when you're having fun. Uh, how do we contact you if people want to, you know, <laughs> buy your book? When it, when will it be out? And well, uh, the the book, the book should be out. At, I hope at the end of 2020. Um, but let me give you my website. It's www. Loudon, L-O-U-D-E-N.com. And I'll tell you a quick uh, uh, commercial. On the top of the speaking page, which is on my website, is a 10-minute video. It's unrehearsed, actually. I don't know how I managed to get through that, but it is a story of connection, a magical mm-hmm. story of connection that happened to me when I moved to New York. And it'll take you 10 minutes to watch it. So okay. if you want to... Cool. Yeah, think about that. So, thank you for having me. This has been a wonderful conversation. I wish you the best of of the. It was delightful. Thank you so much, and Adrian. I'm, I'm I, very you know, glad made a note. We, I'm very glad we made this connection. Yes, me too. <laughs> I was going to say, Adrian, we have no excuse. We live in the same place. No, we we'll have to get connection. we'll have to get in touch and make a difference yes. in each other's lives. <laughs> I would love that. Yeah. I would love that. Uh, well, thank you and thank to you contact. And to contact me, it's Adrienne at thecaregiverspace.org. Okay, and fantastic. Yep. All right. And I'm at caregiverdave.com. Everything is right there. So thank you again, and um, uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise. Like the birds will never sing